Hello and welcome to episode six of Love Letters to Baseball. My name is Jackson Roberts and I love baseball. Today's letter comes in from a guy named Matt Midkiff. Uh, I only know him by association because he just happens to be my collegiate head coach. He's a Floridian. He's played and coached at about 15,000 different colleges. So we had a lot to dissect and we had a really good time chopping it up. Possibly our most anticipated episode ever. So hopefully you tune in. As always, make sure to hit that subscribe button. Follow at LL2Baseball on Instagram and Twitter. You guys know the drill by now. I don't need to talk about this any longer. Let's get straight into the chat with Matt. Dear Baseball. He is a Tampa native, a former D1 and D3 baseball player himself. He is the current head coach of the Swarthmore College Garnet, which I have heard is a pretty good Division III baseball program, and a pretty cool guy in his own right, some say. Matt Midkiff, welcome to the program. How are you? Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me, man. It's uh, great to be with you and uh, excited to talk a little baseball. We're going to talk a lot of baseball, man. I don't know if you've uh, seen the title of this podcast, but that's what we're getting at today. Um, before we get too far into things here, why don't you give the folks at home who may not know all about the illustrious Matt Midkiff a quick little 30-second LinkedIn bio. Yeah, so uh, born in, as you said, outside of Tampa, Florida, in Brandon, Florida, uh, played high school there, was recruited to play at the University of South Florida, uh, played there for two years, transferred to Moorhead State University in Kentucky. Um, had a had an injury there and uh, ended up transferring again. So my diploma looks more like a passport uh, than a diploma. But um, ended up at Wilkes University, Division three program in Northeast Pennsylvania, and that's kind of how I got the uh, got the insight into Division three, and got a master's degree there, an MBA, and started my coaching career as a grad assistant. Went to Frank Phillips Junior College in Texas for a year. Well, uh, came back to the East Coast at Swarthmore. Was there for two years as an assistant and then got the head job at Eastern University. Was there as the head coach for four years. And now I'm back at Swarthmore uh, in my ninth season, if you count this as a season, as the head coach at Swarthmore College. So I think I went over the, the time limit, but. Uh, a lot going on on the on the LinkedIn bio. Yeah, I mean, it is a passport. That's kind of how it ends up being, I think, a lot of the time when you're not a former big leaguer. But great to have you at SWAT for nine years at this point. I think you found yourself a pretty dang good landing spot at the D3 level. So before we jump into the baseball side of things, uh, I want to give people the chance to get to know you even a little bit better. So we're going to do uh, the second installment of Rapid Fire. We're taking out some of the kinks this week. Hopefully it goes uh, even more according to plan with uh, rapid fire. Uh, so you're on the hot seat. Or you, do you find yourself ready? I'm ready to go, J-Rob. All right, let's go. So uh, what's the best post-game meal? Chipotle. Chipotle. Nice. Yeah. Who is the funniest player you've ever played with or coached? Charlie Levitt. Textbook. Has to be, yeah, he's a... Uh, <laughs> Just I could just watch him live life, and he cracks me up. 
<laughs> you don't have to do anything. Just being Charlie being Charlie cracks me up. Easy enough. Absolutely. Uh, favorite lift in the weight room? Uh, dumbbell bench. Solid. Solid. Uh, most unique team name you've ever seen on a baseball field? Oh, man. Um, probably have to go with, oh, you said on a baseball field. Um, you know, I'm going to say Garnet. Oh. I'm gonna say Garnet. All right. Just because it, it's it, it it's a it's just a it's just a color, and why yeah. why did why is it there? I don't know. Do you know? Nobody I knows. Do. So uh, we're in the Garnet Valley, man. It's a it's a very nice gemstone. But yeah, I like it. Good answer. Uh, if I pulled up your Spotify or your Apple Music right now, what would be the number one song most listened to? Right now. Um, see, I'm a, I'm more of a, a true crime podcast person, so I'm not a, I'm not huge on music, but my, my kids are into Kenny Chesney right now and save it for a rainy day is one that they love. And, uh, we've been playing over and over again. Quality. All right. Favorite right-handed hitter from the state of California that you've ever recruited? Wes Fishburne. <laughs> <laughs> Knew it was coming. Knew it was coming. Good answer. Good answer, honestly. I love Wes. Uh, and finally, uh, best memory that you have on a baseball field? It, it, it just it has to be Centennial Conference Championship 2018. And there is, and I've, I've heard other coaches say this, but there's nothing like watching your team dogpile and celebrate. Um, knowing everything that went into that and um, the highs and the lows for the individuals and for the team uh, that it's just an, there's ecstatic feeling and watching the joy come over the faces of our of our players and our our parents and um, you know administrators and things like that there's just there's nothing like it yeah i mean i kind of knew where that answer was going uh that's mine as well uh i i think that it's kind of natural that we might share the same thing but we're going to dedicate essentially the entire second half of the program today to, to talking about swat memories so don't you worry if you're if you're tuning in as a swat player or alum to to listen to some good old cathartic swat talk and we'll get into that in the second half uh but i do want to go back in time a little bit because, uh, you know, I, you came into my life in 2014, uh, and obviously you've been in the game of baseball since a couple decades before then. Uh, but starting at, you know, kind of that end of Wilkes career, beginning of coaching career, um, I, I guess, like, even before then, like, when did you first know that you wanted to be a coach and that was the career path you wanted to take? I think it was when I realized that I wasn't going to be a player. Uh, when that I, you know, that I didn't have the X factor and I was just like everybody else um, as a player. And so that was always my dream. I think most kids that love uh, baseball or a sport, they grow up and they, their, their goal is to achieve the highest level of that sport. Mine was no different. And then you kind of realize when you see some some dudes that play and you go, okay, like he's, he's a little different than me. Um, I can hang with him, but he's just different. And so when you get that in your head, you realize um, the next best thing to me was maybe I could help other 
people achieve their dream. And so that's the first thing that kind of sparked my interest in coaching. And I had a bunch of really good coaches growing up that taught me what I think would be above my level at the time, above my age um, in, in the game. And so that was, I think, a huge benefit to me because I was always looking, you know, looking around the field and trying to see what can we do better, you know, even as a player, a high school kid, um, how can we be better? What can we do to, to win? And so those things always kind of stuck with me. And I thought, I'm, you know, the modeling career is probably not going to work out. So we'll, we'll head into, into baseball and, uh, and see if we can, uh, you know, make a go at that. I feel you. I, I don't, I mean, I want to back you up there. I don't know if the modeling career dreams are ever really dead if you set your mind to them. Um, I think that as a player, I always kind of tried to take elements from the coaches that I had growing up and try to incorporate them into my game. But as a coach yourself now, are there any things that you try and take from the coaches you had as a kid and any particular um, characteristics of those best coaches that you had that you think are, you know, influential to your success as a coach these days? Yeah, well, what's funny, I think, is that, you know, there's, there's two ways you can learn as a coach or as a young person growing up in the game. And, and one is from a coach that you absolutely love and respect and, and think that they do everything that you would do. Um, the other way is coaches that are completely opposite of that, that you don't agree with. Uh, and you're kind of forced to say, okay, if I don't agree, what would I do instead? Right. And so you yeah, kind of have to think about that, even as a, an assistant coach or something along those lines. Um, so to me, you know, the, the things that I took, the, the big thing I took was that it's a relationship business and that people, the, the players are people and they're, they may be, you know, little kids that you're coaching. They may be seven, but a seven year old's a person and a, a 22 year old college guy is a person and they, um, they respond to things differently. And so you have to treat each individual uh, the way that, that will get the most out of them. And I think knowing that uh, a coach has the player's best interest in mind always makes that player want to play, want to listen, want to do better, as opposed to like anyone who has a boss that, you know, you comes in and yells at them. I mean, who wants to do better for, for your boss if they come in and yell at you, right? So um, so my thought was always, how can we get the most out of people by being positive and, and helping them and supporting them to get to their goals? And, you know, sometimes it's, it's tough love. Sometimes you do have to get on people, but you, in my opinion, you earn the opportunity to get on guys by showing them up front that you care about them. Um, and so the, that, res that always resonated with me as a player. And so that's probably the biggest thing I took as a coach. And that resonates with, with, I mean, from my player's perspective, not that long ago. Um, I think that there were moments both during my college career and earlier in my career when I could just, you know, feel a difference between coaches who did and did not care. Uh, and that makes a world of difference to me. And I think that it's, it's pretty much the most essential ingredient that I've seen to a successful coach-player relationship. And that can be as much of a difference to a team's success as any X's and O's on the field. I mean, did you kind of feel that at all shift, like even during your Swarthmore career or with any of the teams you coached even before that, where there was like kind of that trust either 
making or breaking between the players and the coaching staff? A hundred percent. I think there was, you know, early in, early in my time at Swarthmore, there just, you know, there were some, uh, some things that, you know, the players and coaches didn't jive on. And some of that was because those players weren't recruited by that, you know, that coaching staff. Um, so it's always, it's always difficult when you have a coaching change because those players didn't enter into an agreement with the new coach. They entered into agreement with the old coach and, and those philosophies may be different. Um, so that was, that was a, a little bit uh, trying at times to try to figure out, you know, how do I get through to these guys who I don't really know that well, um, all while bringing in players that we did go through the process with and get to know them, them and their families and, and basically explain what our philosophy was as a, as a coaching staff. And so, so then that player and that family got to decide if they wanted to do that. Or not. And I think that's a big thing. And, and what I've found is that players and families are up, get upset when their expectations don't match the reality. And typically the head coach sets the expectation during the recruiting process. So if I tell you it's going to be, it's going to be one way and it ends up being another way, um, then I wouldn't blame a player or family for being upset about that. So that's why in the process, we always try to be overly transparent about what exactly our recruits are signing up for. And when they say yes, then that's great. And they know what they're getting. And then we try to stick to that as much as we can through their career so they can say, hey, yep, coach, you, you told me exactly what I was getting into. And, um, and it turned out to be what I expected. So I can prepare for that and I can make that decision. So um, I think that's kind of the, you know, that that's the tough part is when you're obviously you're dealing with people, you want to make sure that you're you know, you're, you're transparent and anybody that feels like they're deceived, as you mentioned, trust that, that trust goes away that the second that, that, you know, that, uh, agreement is broken or those expectations are changed. So, um, we, you know, as a staff, we really try to make sure that everybody knows exactly what they're getting when they come to Swarthmore. Yeah. And I think from the player's side, I, I, that's the only side I've experienced it from. And obviously it's just tough to know what you're walking into with a college program until you actually get there. Um, but from your perspective, what is, what are some of the challenges of bringing in these high school kids from all over the country, especially at Swarthmore? And how do you, I guess, kind of separate the ones that you know are going to be successful when you only get to see them play against each other and not at the college level? Yeah, that's always interesting. I, I think there are certain characteristics that we have identified as things that will make someone successful at Swarthmore. And uh, the top thing is work ethic. I think somebody with a, an outstanding work ethic will always over overachieve and, and be better than their talent. So um, we recruit people first and players second. And so if we recruit someone that has that insane work ethic. It, it, they're going to have it in the classroom. They're going to have it in the weight room. They're going to have it on the field. That person will get better. When we recruit them, they're 17 years old. I have yet to find someone who works really hard all the time at baseball at our, at our place that doesn't get considerably better uh, over, their, over the course of their careers. So. 
that's the main thing that we look for is this kid's a hard worker and, and those things are identified by coaches. Those things are identified when we do see them in person and the way that they carry themselves um, and then the things that they value. They say, coach, I love being in the weight room. I love taking a hundred ground balls a day. I love, you know, they have to have that passion for the process, the passion to get better. And it's going to be, you know, sometimes it's going to be in the winter when it's snowing outside and you have to trudge through, you know, inches of snow to get through, you know, get to the field house to hit or to get to the weight room to lift at, at 6 a.m. when it's 25 degrees out. Do you, do you roll over and go to sleep or do you, do you go get better? Um, and so the work ethic we think carries kids, uh, young men, you know, in their, in their careers and um, ends up making them a, a team full of hard workers. And it's really tough to beat a bunch of guys that outwork you. Yeah. When you, when you look back on all the players that you've coached, um, who do you consider to be kind of the greatest success story in that regard? And not in terms of like, I recruited this player when he was 17, he was already kind of a stud, you know, he was raking or uh, throwing gas on the mound, but like who came in, maybe even barely even made the roster and just kind of used the resources at our program to kind of turn themselves into something that great. You know, what's, what's kind of funny is there's a long list because at that time when we were recruiting your class classes right around yours, there, we weren't getting polished players. It was just, that's just where we were as a program, um, which is why we decided to have the focus that we had on let's get the best people. So I'll rattle some off. Um, I, I distinctly remember seeing Connor Elliott at our camp and he was the only, only kid that was running on and off the field hundred percent every time. And I think he might've gotten a hit. I, I don't even really <laughs> remember. Um, he wasn't a standout player, but he was, a, he had a standout motor. And I said, I want that kid on my team. Uh, he, he was one Charlie Levitt, who turned out to be one of the best players that we've ever had at Swarthmore. He was, came in as a three sport guy from Minnesota. So he probably played a month of baseball a year and, um, was kind of a, a throw in sort of recruit, you know, we weren't thinking Charlie was going to come in and be a dude. He had something about him that he would not, he just, his compete level was off the charts. Uh, Charles Groppy was num was our 14th pitcher out of 14 his freshman year. And once he got an opportunity, he, he busted his butt. He worked his way into being um, a, a conference starter and he was on the mound at a, a regional final for us um, and pitched out of some big situations. Uh, so there's just, I mean, there's three that just come to mind right away. Um, you know, Holden Bridge was a guy who sat for two years and then um, his junior year, he comes out and, and starts and is, you know, national hitter of the week, one week and, and all conference player. You know, I mean, you could go, Jared Gillen had a, you know, he got benched his freshman year and now he's a guy who's uh, invited to the draft, <laughs> the draft league as a, a D1 player now as a grad transfer. Um, you know, Cole Beaker, I thought was going to be a pitcher. He turned out to be the, the best first baseman, <laughs> you know, it's sophomore that we've ever had. So 
uh, I mean, really, the, the list goes on and on of guys who just found a way to, to make themselves better. And the, again, the common thread is the work ethic and desire to be great. And, um, and I think what we did at Swarthmore is we didn't put limitations on anyone. We didn't say, you can't do this. Um, and so guys just decided, hey, we want to be great as individuals. We want to be great collectively. And so that was, uh, it was just an amazing thing to watch people have that desire to, to achieve. And um, that's why I, it's going to be so much fun watching all of, all of you all uh, as you progress through your lives because it, the, the sky's the limit. Um, because I know how hard everybody works. Well, uh, you know, I just want to take this time to apologize for anyone who thought we were going to be talking about anything but Swarthmore baseball on this podcast. <laughs> so, I mean, you said it all. I mean, that, that was, you know, the most transformative four years of my life, and I think for pretty much anyone who walks through that program. So um, great to get some shout-outs in there. We'll come back to it very soon, and if you're tuning in for just that, I apologize. But – we have approached the halfway point, which means it is time to see how well Matt Midkiff knows himself uh, in our latest installment of Self Trivia. It's out of six points, uh, currently the lead is four and a half. So if you tie four and a half or you get five, you get your name at the top of our scoreboard on Instagram and you probably get a chance to come back to the tournament champions. So Matt Midkiff, are you ready for Self Trivia? I think so. I just want to start this by saying my wife alluded to the birthday present she got me for my 40th birthday the other day, and I completely forgot what it was. So um, I'm, my expectations of myself are not very high, but uh, I'll give it my best shot. We're going for it, exactly. And that may have been a little bit of foreshadowing right there, so we'll see if that uh, adds up to anything. But question number one, we're going to go back to your days at University of South Florida as a pitcher only um, which did you have more of as a pitcher, walks or strikeouts? <laughs> strikeouts. Oh, no. Oh, man. <laughs> We're 0 for 1. Uh, 21 walks and 11 strikeouts. So, honestly. Yeah. I, want, I, I, I feel like I had, to, I had to bet on myself there. Yeah, that was a tough one. That, uh, <laughs> actually, so I, I, sophomore year at – USF, your opponent batting average against was 096, but you had seven walks and only one strikeout. So the numbers kind of teetered out and ended up right around even par. Yeah, no, and listen, J Rob, I really appreciate you bringing this up. This is, <laughs> this is, this is awesome. So thank you. <laughs> well, you're welcome. I'll, I'll build you back up. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> uh, so then you move on to Wilkes as a player, and all of a sudden you're in the meat of the order every day instead of on the mound. Uh, which of the following stats do you not rank in the top 10 in the Wilkes single season record books? So we've got hits, doubles, and RBI. So you're in the top 10 for two of them, but you're not in the third. Hits? 0 for 2, rough. We're at, so tied for seventh in hits in a single season, tied for seventh in doubles as well, not for RBI. Don't know where you were batting in the order. That could have had some influence on it. Because clearly you oh, I hit two. Involved. I hit two, two in the order. Now, I, I will say, I, I, thought, I thought we were going career. So, single season, that makes more sense. Yeah. Because I only, I only hit for two years there. So, I, I was thinking, okay. Yeah. 
It's all right. Wipe the slate. We're, we're over two. We're done with yeah. the playing portion of the career. So okay, we'll good. Um, this is a half point per question. So the first half of the question is, which year did you have a bigger wins improvement from one year to the next? So 2010 at your second year at Eastern or 2018 at Swarthmore? Swarthmore. Correct. And for a bonus point, how many wins was the improvement or bonus half point? It was 22. Correct. 16 in 2017, 38 in 2018. So we're on the board. We've got a full point. Now All we're right. rocking. Uh, question number four, how many different assistant coaches have you had during your time at Swarthmore? And I'll give you a half point if you're within one on either side. All right. Um, and you can talk this one out if you need to. It goes, it goes pretty far back. 15. Oh, cannot, cannot get the half point there. It is only 12, which is a pretty high number, I have to say, for, uh, for assistance. But I think we have like eight right now. So yeah, that's, it's a big coaching staff at the moment. Uh, there were in 2017, there were only four coaches on the staff. And in 2021, we're up to eight. So things are definitely trending upward in terms of finding folks who want to be around the fine young men that play at Swarthmore. But there you go. Absolutely. It's uh, an easy sell. It's an easy yeah, sell. hundred uh, percent. We're still on one point. We got, we got a couple more opportunities to make it up here. Uh, question five, during your time at Swarthmore, which pitcher, which qualified pitcher, I should say, compiled the lowest career ERA? Cork. Jack Corkery. That is close, but not the correct answer. Jack Corkery, 2.38 career ERA. There's one guy who's at 2.33. Do you have any last guesses who it is? Gonzo? The correct answer is Nathan Booth. 2.33. Oh, yeah. 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 He was he was a guy. He came in as an outfielder. And Talk a little bit about Nate Booth. Give, give a little yeah, bit. He's a good dude. Nate Booth. Big, big, uh, big Nate Booth fan. He, I would not have guessed him, but I should have. Yeah. He also gave up a lot of unearned runs. Like, we did not play good defense behind Nate Booth during my time when he was a pitcher there. But he did his job. He got weak contact all over the place. Yeah, he was, he was dirty. He was dirty. Yeah. And that just goes to show, I mean, Nate Booth, I don't know if he threw a pitch his entire senior year that topped 80 miles per hour. Nobody hit that guy hard. And I think that just is a testament to – being able to pitch, especially at the division three level, as opposed to just being the guy with the, I mean, he did have pretty nasty stuff, but it's definitely not all about velocity. And that's, I mean, a huge testament to it would be that specific player. Yeah. His, his, uh, sinker, like everything, everything moved, you know, didn't throw anything straight. So that was, uh, yeah, he was, he was fun to watch and a really, really calm guy on the mound. Very good dude. Very good dude. Very. Uh, and lastly, and this is the, the piece that you may have foreshadowed already. Um, Matt Medkiff is not the only elite athlete in his family. His wife, Kelly Canera at the time, now Kelly Canera Midkiff, played lacrosse at Old Dominion. I would like you to give me for a half a point each the position she played and the uniform number she wore at Old Dominion. Number 18. That is correct. And she was, uh, see, I'm not great at that. She was an attack or forward or, I think, 
It was mid- or, uh, midfield. I'm, yeah. I'm going to have to give you the point. The, the uniform number was more important. So. Okay. And also. Can, I, we, can we edit this part out? <laughs> <laughs> that was good enough. I don't okay. know lacrosse positioning either. She was, she was pushing down the. the she, she was really fast. She was a good yeah. runner. She's getting down the field. I'm giving yeah. you the full point, mostly because I can't stand to see your name below Ricky's in the last place slot on the standings. So <laughs> we get two points. That ties Ricky. Good to know people in high places, J-Rob. Yeah, 100%. So two points. We'll see if that earns you a spot in the Tournament of Champions. I'm guessing maybe not, but, you know, you gave it your best shot. Um, but well done, nonetheless. Um, and we're going to get right back into the SWAT talk because uh, I want to ask you, before I even showed up, so 2013 through 15, as a high school player, you're maybe looking up some of the stats and you come in and you, you meet some of the guys you saw, but someone who was actually there, what were those early years most memorable for? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, you know, my first year at Swarthmore, we ended up missing the playoffs by one game. And so it was, you know, everybody was pretty positive um, environment. And, you know, we had a couple guys like Rory McTeer and Tim Quillos, guys that uh, would, you know, would be great players for us now. Um, And just intense guys that worked hard, great people. They're still, you know, good friends of mine to this day and very helpful to the program. Um, and, you know, I think we had, it, again, it was a transition. The first year was sort of a honeymoon period. And then we had, we did have some difficulty with, with the transition and trying to figure out right type of person to recruit and, and how to coach people at Swarthmore. Um, even though I was an assistant a few years prior, it was not, it's just, it's a different kind of place. And so finding someone who craves the academic rigor, but also has a desire to be great in baseball as well. uh, There there aren't that many people out there like that. So obviously for us, you know, introducing Slothmore to the right type of individuals is very important. And so, you know, I think what happened was we went from trying to trying to convince people that they should come to Swarthmore to to telling telling our story and basically saying we we would love to have you but we don't need you because our path is is clear we are going to win here it's you know we, we have a, a good system in place and whoever chooses the amazing opportunity in front of them will be in for a, a great experience will be in for a great ride but don't let us, I'm not going to convince you. I'm not going to, you know, uh, everybody thinks of like recruiting in terms of D1 football or basketball. We're not going to woo people. We're going to tell them like it is. And we want the kids that, you know, have a desire to come and, and play in that type of environment. And, and so that took a little while to figure out. And then I, I feel like once we figured out who we wanted to coach and who we needed in our program and who would thrive at Swarthmore, which is obviously the most important thing, then things started moving in the right direction. Um, but again, as I said earlier, you learn a lot uh, from things that, that don't go perfectly or, or maybe, you know, for situations that uh, you could have handled better. And 
and you have to really think on, well, how do I, how do I do that better next time? And so, uh, you know, you're better in, in coaching is probably with, with any other profession, you're, you're better a year later, you're better five years later, you're better 10 years later because you have experience and you've been through so much. And I feel like now I'm, I'm way better than I was back then and probably would have handled situations differently, but you know, you can't go back and change it. You can only learn from it and get better. Yeah. And, and there seems like there is this cognitive shift in recruitment strategy that carried over to success on the field over time. And obviously if you look at our records over the years, it would appear that 2018 was kind of the year that everything just clicked. Uh, but what do you see as, you know, the first moment on the field, at least where you realize that the team that you had put together by that point or were putting together could be that good, could be the type of team that could compete for a conference title someday. I feel like it was towards the back end of 2017 when we got into conference and played really well against the better teams in our league. And we ended up missing the playoffs, um, maybe a game or two. But our last, whatever it was, 10 games, I think we were seven and three or eight and two. And uh, because we started out, I think, like one and eight or, you know, not a, not a great beginning. And, you know, there were some games that we had to pull out of, pull out late that against teams that I felt like we were, we were better than the team. And, you know, it was just a bunch of guys that were learning how to win. And oftentimes you have to, you have to learn how to lose <laughs> before you learn how to win. And, um, I think we we sort of took the accelerated course on that because it all sort of happened in one season where we were losing to not great teams and then barely beating not great teams and then losing to good teams and then finally beating or really competing with some some really good teams. Um, And so we sort of, like I said, kind of advanced uh, our cause in that season. But what that did, I feel like, was it got a – uh, it, it just got everybody to the point where we saw what the the roadblocks were. We saw who the roadblocks were, and we knew we could beat them. And we knew that we were one mistake away or one good at bat away from beating a team that you know was everybody thought was so much better. Um, and then the following year, once we got you know to that to that point of you know the the cognitive like uh, the collective, the collective mindset, I think that we're pretty good. You know? <laughs> um, and that is a tough thing to, when there's really not a ton of evidence of it, right? Like that's the, that's the deal. There wasn't, was there anything that said that showed us that we were that good? Not on paper, but I think we were around each other knowing that, everybody was getting better because they worked so hard. And, uh, and so that, yeah, that was, that was kind of the first time that I, I really saw it is towards the end of that 2017 season. And yeah. it was, uh, it was special. We, we lost some close games, but I could feel it coming. Yeah. Do you remember the handshake promise at the end of the 2017 season right after the McDaniel doubleheader? This is with coach Halpern. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. <laughs> Coach Halpern drops a, an odd quote every now and then, um, comes out of left field. But I think in that moment, 
coming off a sweep of a doubleheader, but knowing we had still missed the playoffs by one game. And I think we had three uh, walk-off conference losses that season as well. So obviously we were right on the precipice. Uh, something about that moment where we knew we had just missed out, but we're all kind of staring each other face to face and saying like, this is not going to happen again next year. That actually resonated with me a lot. And I do give coach Halpern credit for uh, kind of holding us to that in the moment uh, and knowing that we had a long time and we we're going to have to keep our foot on the gas if we wanted to succeed that following year. Um, and when 2018 does roll around, I went abroad for that fall, and I think uh, that was a common theme for a lot of players in the program. Uh, and I, I wasn't here during the fall. I imagine fall practices were awesome and competitive. And I think I honestly needed that fall away for myself, too, to really kind of work on myself and my game. But uh, we come back, 2018 season starts, and obviously there was kind of a, um, a moment during which we caught fire but what do you think, you know, how early in that season do you think you realize it was a special team? And slash, what moment do you think kind of tipped us over the edge in order to kind of become that winning team? Well, the, the moment that sticks out to me is when we were in uh, Oregon and we were on the, in the last, somehow we made it through the entire trip without getting a game rained out. And we were on the verge of being swept by Willamette and I think it was the eighth inning and it, it just started pouring and uh, the game, they ended up canceling, you know, canceling the rest of the game. We were in the dugout together. And I remember, you know, we, we played very well, I thought on the, on the trip and, and then we ended up losing. And that was a, that was a team that was a, they were in the regional final. Uh, they were a very good team in 2018 as 18 as well. Uh, but we're, we're in the dugout together and it's raining. And I just remember saying, and I, I don't remember exactly how I said it, but uh, that this is not the norm that we cannot get used to losing. It's not good enough to play close. We're not there anymore. We're beyond that. And I felt like when we got back to the East coast and we got back home that there was, we had, we had really gone through a, a rough trip from a logistical standpoint. Uh, it was not, it was a minor league bus tour, you know, on that, on that spring break trip. Uh, but that's what I wanted. I wanted, I wanted you guys, I wanted our team to know we will play anyone, anywhere, at any time. And we believe in ourselves that much that we'll go out there and we'll play anybody. And I, I feel like, we took on that mentality that it doesn't matter who's on the other side because they have to play us. And, um, and so we got to that point, you know, I think after the trip and, and just kind of never looked back at that. Point. Mm -hmm. And between like the 2018 team uh, and then obviously there have been other talented teams that you've coached before then, after then, I mean, immediately after, I think the 2019 team was probably even more talented uh, and beyond, because obviously you have a ton of guys coming in that are studs nowadays. But what are some of the characteristics that you think were, you know, most crucial to that particular team's success? And, and how do you think, you know, other teams can kind of, you know, pick and choose some of the elements of that team that really kind of stood out to you as, as reasons we were able to win a lot of games and, and to win a championship? I think that team had more fun than anybody else, anybody they played you know, probably any team I've ever coached. And 
I feel like we were playing with house money at, at that point and, and nobody knew that we weren't supposed to win. And, and so that was, I think that, you know, obviously we talked about the hard work and the preparation, but that group played with zero fear. And I don't know how many times we were, we were losing in the seventh inning, but it was, there were quite a few times and no one ever thought we were losing. Everybody believed we were going to win that game again with zero evidence that that should happen. There was, we, we didn't have a, a 20 year storied program where that, you know, that was the case. And you could just look back and go, Oh, everybody in the past has always done it. No, everybody in the past at Swarthmore lost those games. And so um, that group just, again, enjoyed being around each other, loved each other, uh, played with nothing to lose and, and fearless, and they didn't care who the opponent was. And I think, you know, that, that's and, – and it's – you know, 2019 is, is a different situation because now there's expectations. And, um, and so that makes it even, even more difficult, you know, to – you know, when people are, are have you marked on the on the schedule. Um, and so that team didn't have any of that. They just went out and played. And, and, and as you said, a, a talented team, not the most talented team we've had. You know, I would say 19 and probably 20, both, both top to bottom, you know, more talented. But as we've seen, it's, it's not always the, the most talented team that wins. And, and that was a, a group of a roster of 26. And a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of guys that just love being around each other and accepted their role, whether that was on the field or in the dugout. And the guys in the dugout, and I've said it for years, were just as important to our success as the guys in the field because they were keeping everybody light. They were, you know, they were being great teammates. And, um, and so that was, that 2018 team was the definition of a team and everyone played their role and, and did it very well. And specifically when we beat Hopkins, uh, you talked about it as being even after the regional championship and getting to go to the World Series, that was the moment that still stuck with you the most is the kind of rising from the, the scrap heap in the centennial and, and taking down the, the longtime powerhouse. And, and that was the moment that stuck out to you the most from that season. But just expanding on that a little bit, I mean, what does it mean to you as a coach to, to be able to beat a team like that in, in such a high pressure moment? Yeah, you know, I again, it's it's the thing is about about watching our players do something, and and that's what's great in coaching is, you know, if you do it right, you help people achieve things they never thought they could do, and listen, I, I that that is a that there's there's I'd have to coach, uh, you know, to be two hundred years old probably to achieve the things that that they've achieved in that program. But, you know, what's great about sport and about, about baseball in particular is um, on that specific day, it doesn't matter what Jersey you're wearing. It doesn't matter, you know, what happened last year or five years ago or, or, or two days ago. It, it, it's all about that moment and that pitch. And if you win that pitch, then you have a chance to win the next one. If you lose that pitch, you have a chance to win the next one. Um, and so, you know, I, I think some of the, the storylines from that game where, uh, you know, we were dominated 
uh, all the way up to one one out in the ninth inning, and um, I lose one out in the ninth inning. Beaker gets on. Uh, you double. Connor Elliott drives you two in to tie the game, um, and then you know Sam Jacobson, a walk-on catcher who we did not recruit, and I distinctly remember his coach saying, "If you give him a chance, you'll love him." Um, and Sam today is is one of our our biggest leaders on our team and has amazing leadership qualities. But then he was a freshman who also had amazing leadership qualities and stepped in during the season. Um, and he gets a chance to win the game. And, and he was completely confident. He knew what he was looking for. He got the right pitch. He did the job. And, you know, that's something that I'll, I'll that's, that story is a story I'll always tell that, you never know when your number will be called. So you have to be ready. And, uh, and Sam was ready. And so those are the, those are the things, you know, it's not necessarily about winning. It's just about that our players were prepared in that moment to do what they needed to do. And um, that's very fulfilling. And the fact that to watch them experience that together um, and, and, they earned it and it was just, it was extremely fulfilling. And, and I, I will, I will always treasure that no matter what else we do from here on out. I, I don't know that there's a moment that can top that. I think that's very well said. And I want to get your honest answer here, not as like, you know, a coach who's uh, sticking up for his players and always believes in them, but as a, <laughs> as a human who's experiencing things go down in real time, uh, when Michael Seppi hits a, 97 mile an hour line drive directly to their uh, one out of two outfielders and Cole Hebel forgets how many outs there are, gets doubled off second base immediately. First pitch of the next inning, their guy hits a pinch hit home run over the right field foul pole. Where's your head at and how confident are you that we're still going to win that baseball game? So my, my first thought was, of course, if we're going to do, if we're going to do this, it's, it's going to be really hard. It's, it's not going to be easy, right? Like that they're, they're not going to roll over. Um, adversity is always going to just stare you in the face. And, you know, I, I like, well, that's not good for us. You know, <laughs> obviously like, I did not think that was, um, I mean, like everyone, we, we thought the game was over when Seppi hit that ball. And then it was like a, an amazing play by their outfielder and, you know, Hevel was running around. He didn't know where to go. <laughs> so um, now it's now it's kind of funny, but at the time it was not at all. And um, and 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 you know what? It's a it's a it's a lesson. It's another lesson of making sure your players know exactly what to do, and and making sure that they are in. You know, they no matter what the moment is, that they're coached well, and they 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 know you know what what they should be what they should be doing. Um, you know, the, the thing is, I looked at our team and our team thought that, that we were going to win. So it honestly, and I always say, like, it never, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the team thinks. And our team believed we were going to win. And, uh, and they, you know, did not, <laughs> our guys don't do anything easy, right? Like you, you go to Swarthmore, that's not a, that's not an easy choice. The, the academics, the, 
you know, the, the amount of reading that you guys do and, um, you know, just all the stuff that you're, that, that you have on your plate, it's just not easy. And so coming down from, you know, one run in the 10th inning or 11th inning or whatever it was, you, you do stuff more difficult than that every single day. So I, I believed we were going to win, whether it was that game or the next game. Uh, I knew we were going to win, but, you know, thankfully we got it done right there and, and in an even more dramatic fashion, uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, another, you know, that's a situation too where Holden uh, pinch ran for you. And, and so he ended up, you know, coming up to hit in a big situation and smoked a pitch that, you know, almost was a game winning gapper. So um, that scored the tying run. So you just talk about guys who are prepared and that's what I love about our players is that they prepare as though they're going to play and they're, they're a big part of, of that particular game, whether they expect to play or not. And so um, our team was ready and prepared and we deserve to win because we earned it. And, um, and we had everybody on the roster that, that pitched in and, and we got the win. We're probably running a little bit long on time here, but I'd be remiss if we didn't at least touch on the regional in Auburn, New York. I think it was uh, something that none of us will ever forget, but at the same time, it almost feels like it didn't happen because it was just flying by so fast. Uh, yeah. Just kind of walk me through what's going through your head throughout that tournament over the course of those four days. Well, we were all going through it together because I, I never coached in a regional either. And so um, I remember talking with our, our basketball coach, uh, Landry Kosmalski, who um, is, you know, obviously an amazing coach and has, uh, his team was, you know, number one in the country last year, national runner up the year before. So the guy knows what he's doing. Right. So, you know, we, we were, we got the stats for Baldwin Wallace and I was like, they're all hitting like 500. How do we get these guys out? You know, they're amazing. And I remember him saying, just remember our conference is really good. So you can go beat those guys. It happens to us all the time. We'll draw somebody and, you know, it looks like they're unbeatable, but you can beat them. Our conference is really good. And so I took that and I was like, okay, we can win. Um, and then the other, the other big thing that happened was uh, Dan Gasowski, our pitching coach, said, this is how we win if we stack up this, the pitching like this. I think these are the best matchups. And I said, all right, let's do it. He said, we're either going to look like idiots or we're going to look like geniuses. And I said, well, don't worry about that. I'm the one that, that will look like the idiot. So if you're right, you're going to get all the credit for it. And, uh, and he was absolutely right. And, you know, the, the, the point that was uh, another one of those, you know, that you were talking about where like, hey, we're behind, um, you know, we, Ryan Warren pitched great. And then we bring in Cork with the lead and they, they storm back and, and take the lead. Um, and I thought, you know what, this was a great run. We, this was, this team's good. We did, you know, we played as well as we can play. You know, what are you going to do? Right. And then we knock their guy out and then you come up and hit a home run off the foul pole. And I was like, okay, I guess we're not done yet. <laughs> you guys don't want to go home. And, uh, and we end up winning that game. And then Ricky pitches the game of his life against Cortland. Um, and then, you know, two games against Southern Maine. And again, another really good story program. And, 
and you're right, it just flew by except for the the night of the regional final when we weren't, weren't really sure if we were going to play and things were sort of delayed. And I remember calling my wife um, because I felt like, you know, I was on, on death row about to go to my execution. That's how, that's how nervous I was. And, uh, and so I said to her, uh, you know, Hey, what's going on? You know, I'm kind of nervous. And she's like, well, of course you're nervous. This is the biggest game of your career. So uh, being a former athlete, she was not as supportive as I was, I was hoping in that moment. Um, so I ended up watching like Maury Povich or something, but, uh, but then when we got to the field, we were ready. And, uh, and I could tell, you know, we, we got the game started right before the, the deadline. I could tell our guys wanted to finish it and, and knew that we were going to finish it. And, um, and it was an, it was an awesome moment. And I just, it, it was just, it was one of those, like, I can't believe this is happening. This happens to other people kind of thing. So um, uh, another, you know, one B of, of favorite moments is watching that dog pile and just so proud of our coaching staff and our players for that win. Yeah. And from there, I mean, we get to go to Appleton and, you know, as, as much as it seemed like we were maybe a team of destiny at that point, you know, when you get to Appleton, there's eight thing, eight teams that think they're all teams of destiny and, and obviously we go there and we don't win it. But what do you think we accomplished uh, either from a tangible standpoint or even just from a, a psychological standpoint with the performance we had in Appleton in those three games? Well, I think everybody's always afraid of the unknown. And so you see these teams' names and you see their rankings and you see that these teams are always there. They're always the best. And then you get on the field and you realize – we're pretty good too, you know, and, and I think what we accomplished as a program was we put ourselves in that conversation with, with those great programs and with those great teams. And we have also kind of earned the right to play them more often and, and um, you know, they'll play us now. So I think that's, that's awesome. And it helps us as a team prepare to play those games late in the season if we can play them throughout the season. And so, uh, you know, I, I think you, you just kind of, you just kind of make yourself a, you know, a, a known quantity at that point. And, and, and everybody knows when you play Swarthmore, you have to beat them. They're not going to beat themselves. They're going to play really, really hard and they have really good players. And so that's something that, uh, I believe that team earned for our program going forward. And our guys will be playing in those kind of games more often and they'll be used to it. And, you know, hopefully that, and I think it will help us continue to, uh, you know, to, to prepare ourselves for long postseason runs. Um, but you know what else? Uh, I think it, it kind of slayed the dragon. And, and put to rest the, uh, just the, the mentality of, of what Swarthmore was and, and what it wasn't and uh, what was capable from a, a Swarthmore baseball program. And, and you've seen that, you know, with, uh, with our other athletic programs too, um, which is fantastic. And, and, you know, when I got the job, I said there's no reason that a top three liberal arts school can't be a top 25 baseball school. and uh, 
you know, it turned out that a lot of, of really good players and coaches, uh, I guess, helped make me, uh, <laughs> make me a, a soothsayer. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 it was, uh, it was a lot of hard work to get to, to this point and there's a lot of work to continue to do, uh, but we know we can do it and, and we feel like we know the formula of bringing in the right people. Well, all eyes are all eyes on the future and I'm certainly excited about where my alumni are, or where my alma mater is going uh, in, in the coming years once we're allowed to have baseball seasons again. Thanks for hanging in there if you're just waiting for us to get to the draft portion of this show. And, you know, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to finish up here with uh, a very crucial draft, one that people are saying will settle centuries-old scores, uh, which is the draft of the mats. So baseball players, MLB players, whose first name is Matt, Matthew, or some other spelling of the above. Uh, And as always... You are the guest. You have the choice between the first overall pick or the second and third. Uh, What are you going with? I'm going to go second and third. All right. I think that's a smart choice in this draft. I think that you can get a lot of value. Um, (laughs) It's maybe a little top-heavy, but we'll see. So uh, I, in my prep for the draft, just went straight. Like I, I went on baseball reference and I looked up people whose names are Matt and I took as many guys as I could who had high war. So with the first pick, I'm actually going to take the guy with the second most war out of all the mats. So war, maybe not being everything to me, I'm going to go with the guy who I think is a better hitter and has the best career hitting average numbers. So that's going to be Matt holiday is my first overall pick. Matt holiday is an absolute Stud at the plate, career 889 OPS, 300 homers. Um, anybody out there who thinks the cores factor had anything to do with that, insane. He did it in St. Louis too. Honestly, kind of the same thing Nolan Arenado is doing right now, where he translates from ballpark to ballpark. If you play at Coors Field, you hit great at home. You don't hit very well on the road. It's, uh, it's a, a very even thing. So Matt Holiday, I think, is the best hitter on this list, uh, and I'm taking him first overall. Good choice. Uh, I did have him on my list. Uh, for my first of two picks, I'm going to go with Matt Kemp. He, uh, and I just, you know, what I wrote down next to him is just dude. He's just a dude. Like you want that guy on your team, you know, and, and I'm, as you, as you know, J-Rob, I'm more about like, can that guy play ball? Right. Like I'm not a, I'm not as, you know, not that I'm, not that I'm old school per se, but I'm more about like, the eye test shows me that that guy can play. And I want that guy on my team. So Matt Kemp is my first. And then a little bit, little bit out of left field, going Matt Caesar. And the reason I'm going Matt Caesar is because the guy donated his, an organ when he was in college. Like, I mean, you talk about like a guy would give, like, give a kidney to win. Like, I mean, he gave a kidney to so somebody else could live or – I, it probably wasn't a kidney. I think it was bone marrow or something like that. But um, and he's an amazing artist. True. And he's a he's a local guy, uh, Villanova guy. So uh, so Matt Kemp and Matt Caesar are my two. I like it. Those are solid choices. Um, I don't want to go straight chalk here, but you did leave me the number one Matt in terms of war on the board, and I think he's a worthy choice. I think he was going to go in this draft anyway. 
Um, and he's somebody who's very close to home for people from my neck of the woods. So Matt Williams, uh, longtime third baseman for the Giants, uh, just a perennial threat, uh, led the National League in homers in 94, led it in RBIs in 90, uh, finished top 10 in the MVP voting five times, it looks like, uh, and not the greatest manager, but that doesn't really necessarily mean that you weren't a great player. And Matt Williams could rake, he could field, he won four gold gloves, and he's just kind of an all-around stud. 46 career wins above replacement. Most uh, most valuable Matt if you're just going by those new age metrics. I like it. That's a good choice. Um, I'm going Matt Stairs because he's a lumberjack. True. I mean, like, if you can say that you've been – a lumberjack and a big league baseball player. No, that's like walking on the moon. I feel like. So uh, just from sheer, like, you know, uh, just there's no one, there's no one that can, that has that LinkedIn bio. So we're going to go with, we're going to go with Matt stairs. Plus also big, big, big Philly guy. So we'll go with them. True. And you know what, Matt stairs uh, at one point in my career, Um, And I didn't really even think about this at the time, but I was trying to live out the Matt Stairs trajectory for a number of years. He was the best pinch hitter in the game. He wasn't a guy who ever had a position on the field. He was really just a DH in the National League before um, DHs were commonly accepted as uh, a necessary evil or just an, an active good in the game. But he would come in eighth or ninth inning in a huge spot and always deliver. Uh, and that was what I tried to do when I didn't have a spot in the starting lineup on, on the college team. So uh, you got to give love to the pinch hitters out there who are just able to step in. It's not an easy thing to do, come in off the bench and, and be ready to hit uh, in that moment after sitting around cold for three hours. So got to give love to Matt Stairs for sure. That's a great pick. All right, I'm going to go. I think this guy is going to be the greatest Matt of all time. He's not there yet, but. 10 years down the road, I think he's going to blow away Holiday and Williams and all those other guys. Uh, I'll take Matt Chapman from the A's. Uh, he is maybe the best. I mean, it's him and Nolan are one, two for defense at third base right now. And Matt Chapman hasn't had that big time offensive season yet, but he's had a few really good ones and he's still only 27. He's got a lot of ball left to play. So Matt Chapman stays healthy, keeps man in the hot corner in Oakland the way he has or gets sent somewhere else because that's kind of what Oakland does. Uh, I think in about 10 years, we're talking about potential Hall of Fame case for Matt Chapman. So happy to have him at this uh, high upside point in his career. Good choice. Very good choice. That's a yeah, good, good value uh, on that pick. I'm going back a little bit. I'm going to go with Matt Noakes, Yankee great. Um, Matt Noakes with, you know, he, he had a Probably a shorter career than uh, than he should have, but he was he was a dude for a little while. Matt Noakes, I remember oh, back in in my day. He's a he's a California guy as well from uh, from San Diego, and um, you know nine point eight WAR. So you know pretty pretty solid player there, and you know looked good in a Yankee hat. So <laughs> we're gonna go with Matt. We're gonna go with Matt Noakes. All right, I respect it. Uh, what was his uh, best attribute as a player? What did he do particularly well? Um, he, he was he was an offensive he was an offensive guy. 136 home runs, which back you know as a as a catcher is is good is a is a, a good number. 
Um, he was, you know, a, a 20th round pick, so not a not a highly tatted guy, but but played well. Uh, was a one one time All Star, but uh, Silver Slugger as well. So he was a he was a guy for a little while, but didn't uh, you know didn't have as as long of a, a career. You know, obviously because of the the catching piece, but um, but you know he played. Let's see, he played about eight full seasons. You know, but uh, maybe not even that. Seven full seasons. Uh, you know, in the in the in the big. So um, as a catcher, you know, pretty good, pretty good hitter, pretty good power numbers for a for a catcher back in those days. Yeah. That's an unsung hero right there. That's a guy who doesn't necessarily stand out in the record books, but if you can get a valuable hitting catcher who spends the better half of a decade in your organization and helps you win, that's super valuable. So I like that value play there. I'm going to take a guy who uh, was instrumental to my childhood as a baseball fan, and I was actually at his major league debut, and he – he, I'm not going to try and say he is Jacob deGrom, but he was kind of Jacob deGrom before Jacob deGrom in terms of always pitching well and never getting any run support. Uh, Giants legend Matt Cain, uh, 29 wins above replacement, uh, finished second in the Cy Young one year, had four all-star seasons along the line, three-time world champ. Uh, the dude always shoved, never really had the greatest stuff, but he had that two-seam and he had a great slider and he – always commanded the strike zone. Uh, and he's just a bulldog on the mound. And if they didn't have him in 2007, 2008, et cetera, to kind of pave the path for Tim Lincecum and eventually Madison Bumgarner to come in there uh, and make up that whole pitching staff, I don't think there are any Giants World Championships. So going to have to give love to, to Kano here. I, I agree. He was, he was pretty high on my list as well. Um, and somebody that, that definitely stood out in that era and uh, was just ready to go every time he got the ball. So that's a that's a great pick. Um, I'm gonna go and see. I'm more of a, as you could tell, I'm more of like a sen- sentimental uh, picker here. But I'm gonna go Matt Joyce. Matt Joyce, who is he's is yeah, uh, played against him in in high school, and. Um, he was a couple years younger than, than me, but, you know, just a, a D2 guy that ended up, you know, making it and uh, has had a, a very, a very solid career as a, as a big leaguer and hung around for a long time. And, um, you know, uh, let's see, working on potentially maybe he'll get to a thousand hits, but uh, it's 150 home runs, almost 500 RBIs. Not bad. Not bad, you know, and a beautiful swing. One of the one of the best lefty swings. I do love his swing. It's great. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, uh, you know, again, got to go with with love from the hometown. So so Matt Joyce makes the cut. I like it. Well, that rounds out your draft, and I definitely think there are some great value plays in there. Uh, and I got to close us out here. I really, I mean, obviously you went a different way with your draft strategy, but I can't believe this guy's still on the board and I'd be remiss if I didn't give him a shout out on this podcast. So uh, taking Matt Carpenter uh, for so long was just a key part of that St. Louis team. He comes in, they, they win it all as a rookie. I don't even think he was on the playoff roster that year, but from 2012 up until about 2018, he was pretty much 
either the best or the second best player on those Cardinals teams. They didn't win a World Series, but they made it to one. That year that they did make it to one, he led the National League in runs, hits, and doubles. Uh, three-time All-Star, three-time Top 10 in the MVP award, uh, and just a really, really solid hitter. And could play anywhere, too. I actually drafted him last week in our utility players draft. Uh, very versatile. Uh, didn't play a ton of outfield, but can uh, and handles the glove well at any uh, infield position. So taking Carp with my last pick. A great, that's a great last-round pick. That's value is off the charts there. I totally agree. Uh, in terms of the war, I mean, I did go straight war, but I got five of the top six guys in terms of war. So I'm feeling good about it. Ultimately, choice is the people's, not mine. So we'll put the poll well, out. But we, we, all, we all know that, that heart carries a lot in this game. So Yes, it does. You know, the, yes, the, it does. We'll see how my guys gel. And if they, uh, if they come together, <laughs> anything's possible. I have much respect. Uh, any last mats that you want to shout out that were close but didn't quite make the cut for you? I wanted, I wanted to throw Matt Diaz out there, and, you know, he, he played at Florida State. Um, but the best part about Matt Diaz is it's pronounced Diaz, but it's spelled D-I-A-Z, yeah. which I think is Diaz. But I think, you know, that's, that's, a, that's kind of a baller move to just completely change the pronunciation of, of a last name that is pretty universally known. So I like it. Yeah. There's a great uh, video of Matt Diaz playing the outfield in Dodger Stadium, I think, where he's uh, some guy's screaming at him about his socks, and he just lifts his pants up to show him that he's wearing the correct color socks. Uh, and I think he's also like doing the little thing behind his back where he's mirroring the guy's lips with his gloves. So, love Diaz. Um, I had Matt Morris on there. I don't know if you remember him, but he was yeah. a great pitcher, great pitcher for the Cards in the early 2000s, and he would have been my next pick. Uh, Catchers, if you want to give some catcher love, I think Matt Wieters deserves some love. Uh, did a really good job with the Orioles for a long time uh, on those Orioles playoff teams. Uh, and then Matt Olson's another guy also on the A's right now that I think is going to be working his way up this list before too long. And Matt Harvey had maybe the best pitching season of any Matt as well. So short prime, but deserves yeah. some consideration for sure. Gone, gone too soon, Matt Harvey. Great, Matt. Uh, but that concludes our Matt's draft. Folks will be able, as always, to vote on the Instagram polls. Uh, just going to say, J-Rob's 4-0 right now. So anyone wants to come and smoke, uh, maybe Matt Midkiff, as connoisseur of the Matt's, will be the first to take me down. But it hasn't happened until it happens. So we'll see how that vote goes. But other than that, we are all wrapped up here except for one last thing. As you know, this podcast is called Love Letters to Baseball, and at the end of every episode, I want to lay it all out there as, as somebody who's uh, been in the game for got to be close to four decades at this point, uh, three and a half or so. Um, you know, what does baseball mean to you at this point in your life, and what would be kind of your, your thank you note or, or maybe even like your sales pitch to somebody who doesn't understand the greatness of this game that we've all come to love? Yeah, I think baseball is – uh, the ultimate challenge to an individual. It is already set so that you will fail more than you succeed. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a game where you are on an island and you're, you're part of a team, but every play is individual. And you have to be able to, to stay confident in the lows and 
Um, and also you, you have to support your team. You have to be selfless. You have to do what's good for, for the cause. And, um, you know, it, it just helps, it helps people grow. It helps people just be tougher and, and realize that you can, you can strike out three times and still get the winning hit, you know? And, and so, um, I think it's just a, a great microcosm for life and that, you know, if, if you have a bad day or have a bad week or a bad year, that it can always get better. And that, you know, you'll have people in your life that are there to support you and somebody else is, is there backing you up. Somebody's behind you. And, um, you know, I just think it's, it's the greatest game because it is a challenge and it's not easy. And, um, you know, there's a great, a great quote from a league of their own where, um, Tom Hanks says, you know, the, the, the heart is what makes it great right? Something along those lines. It's, it's difficult. And, and that's what makes it so great because if it was easy, everybody would do it. Uh, so I just think it's, I, I think baseball has given me so much um, in terms of relationships, in terms of character building, uh, just, you know, uh, my, my goal is just to give, give back um, to our players and anybody who I can come in contact with uh, you know, a little bit of what baseball has given me, um, you know, and, you know, my, my parents, neither one of my parents had a, had college degrees and I have a master's degree and I work at one of the most amazing colleges in the world. Um, and I think that that's because baseball drove me there. And I think it can do great things for, for people in all sorts of situations and just takes a ball and a bat and a glove. and anybody can can achieve the highest levels and uh, I think that's what's so cool about baseball well said uh, I think that if you know if you were looking for for evidence that uh, you know maybe you were able to impart anything that baseball has given to you onto anyone else that you came in contact with I mean I'm a testament to that all the players you mentioned are a testament to that and certainly we're all hoping that there are many more generations of great Swarthmore baseball players to come who can be testaments to that. So keep doing what you're doing. Uh, we all wish you the best luck, obviously, in this coming season. I mean, for selfish reasons, mostly. I mean, I don't want to see Hopkins dominate this conference any longer. But other than that, many thanks for appearing on episode six. Uh, hopefully this podcast gets millions of listeners someday and they'll all come back to it and appreciate uh, your perspective on the game and signing off for now. Thank you so much. J-Rob, I'm, I'm so proud of you and I love you and uh, thanks for having me on, man.